There are a few things as we begin to talk about salvation tonight that I want to make sure we understand because if we don't, as a, as a church, we're just going to kind of run in a thousand different directions, okay? Uh, as I sit and I look out in this room, there are going to be several challenges that make it very difficult for Ephesians 2 to really shape our hearts and our minds in the way that I believe God wants to shape our hearts and our minds. Uh, for some of you, when you grew up thinking about salvation, you grew up with a very narrow view of salvation, Right? And so you grew up believing that there was a certain group of people that if they did the certain things at the right time in the right place in the right moment, then God might just be so kind and feeling generous enough on that day to save them. And so when you think of salvation, there's this tendency to think of narrowness and fear and control, and it ends up just kind of living, you live a life of scrutiny towards yourself and others. Some of you grew up with this understanding of salvation that's probably way too broad, and so in, in your mind, in your book, everybody's fine with God, everyone's okay, it doesn't matter how you live, how you love, what you do, who you worship, that in the end, God is really just this big teddy bear in the sky and everything will work out fine. So as you'll read Ephesians 2 tonight, some of you are going to be challenged because the view of in Ephesians 2 is going to feel a little too narrow for you. Uh, some of you, your challenge is going to be the context you grew up in your church world. And so throughout the scriptures, when the scriptures speak of salvation, they, they tend to speak in two pretty broad spectrums. One, in the first spectrum of that, is what God has done, what God is doing. And so when the scriptures speak of salvation, it talks about the work of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the power of Christ. And then there are places in the scriptures when it speaks of salvation, it focuses on the human response to the work of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the power of Christ. And I was thinking about that this week as the Olympics have been on. You know, it's about all Sydney and I have done for the last eight or nine days is I'll come home from work, we'll eat a meal, we'll drug the kids with NyQuil to get them to go to bed early. Um, we don't do that. We would love to do that, but I think it's illegal. And uh, they go to bed at eight and we'll DVR, we'll watch the Olympics until we're just exhausted. And a few nights ago, Sydney was making me watch the worst sport in all of Olympic history, women's gymnastics, right? She got me really drunk. I had to watch it. Um, <laughs> Just tipsy, maybe. I don't know. But like, we're, we're, we're watching women's gymnastics. We're sport, undisputed, right? And, uh, just kidding. We're, we're watching uh, women's gymnastics, and it was the U.S. qualifier. Were any of you guys watching that? Just raise your hand. You, you saw, okay, a few of you saw the, the qualifier. And Sydney was kind of explaining it to me as it was going on. She said there are two women from every team. Two women from every team who get to go on to the next round if they do best. And there were two, like, undisputed favorites, Gabby Douglas and um, Jordan Weber. And in the last moment, this woman named Allie Raisman on the U.S. team just has the performance of a lifetime and kind of steals that last spot. You guys remember this? Now, there was this crazy moment. If you watch real sports, you know what I'm talking about. Normally in real sports, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm done. Those women could run circles around me. <laughs> in real sports, when they do something amazing... The commentators will replay that moment, and they'll show it over and over and over, right? And then they'll commentate on it. But there's something really amazing. Allie Raisman, she, she has the best performance of her lifetime. No one expected it. And instead of replaying her performance on the floor, they begin to replay her parents', her parents response to the performance on the floor. Did any of you see this? 
And the commentators start putting it in slow motion and, and showing it over and over. And her mom looks just like a crack addict. She's trying to, like, you know, like, what's going on? And her dad, he doesn't breathe for a minute and a half. He just, like, face is turning. And at the end of watching his daughter perform, as soon as she's done, he goes, oh, God. <laughs> and everyone around looks at him. And it's like, man, it's just this crazy moment. And what's funny, over the next few days, that became the most watched clip in the 2012 Olympics. Not the performance on the floor, but the response to the performance on the floor. And this has been the real challenge for some of you in church. And as we get into Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to leave here tonight and you're going to be frustrated because of this, some of the things we didn't talk about. Because as a church culture, we've learned to worship people's response to Jesus instead of worshiping Jesus. And here's what I, I really want you to hear as we get into Ephesians chapter 2 tonight. We're not going to talk about whether you should pray a prayer, whether you should be baptized, whether you're elected or not, whether you're once saved, always saved. We're not going to wrestle with any of those tensions. We'll talk about those in other times. Tonight, we're going to focus our eyes on the beauty and the power and the majesty of Christ. And I believe that when you and I see Christ and his saving work, what will happen is we will never have to worry about how we speak of our responses because when you see things that are great, you respond, right? And so for years, some of us have grown up in these tensions. And Paul's going to go, man, here's a big, broad view. Here's a beautiful, robust view of what it means to be saved. And we're just going to wrestle through it tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to start, start there. And I invite you, just as we read, uh, even if you've heard this your whole life, I want you to just look at these words. And allow the word of God to just kind of transform you as we go. It says, as for you, you were dead. I love that. That's a good way to start, right? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. That word followed in the original language is more like our word mastered. In which you were mastered by the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, we're by nature objects of wrath. And so I love this. Paul says, before you and I can understand the beauty of salvation, we have to understand the tragedy in which we were saved from. He says, and for some of you, this is going to be easier than others. I remember being a kid, I grew up in the church, I've told you guys that a million times, but it greatly shaped my context and the way I viewed everything. I mean, as long as I can remember being in a church, I was probably born on a church people, sent to hit the songbook. I mean, just like there, as long as I can remember. I remember growing up, and I really wrestled with what my testimony was. Some of you that grew up in church, you probably had these moments, right? I remember I would go to youth conferences, and at youth conferences, the night before they would invite us to be saved, <laughs> however that looked in your context, they would have someone come up on the stage and give a testimony. And isn't it true that those testimonies were always just absolutely killer? Some guy would come up on the stage or some woman would come up on the stage and this was my story before I met Christ. I went around punching nuns and burning down orphanages and I loved it, you know. And then one day while watching a football game, I saw a sign for John 3.16 and the Lord pricked my heart. And I stood up in the middle of the stadium at halftime and I preached the gospel and 87,000 souls were brought to the Lord. I was, I was like, man, that's awesome, but like what about me? Like, like, what do I do? I'm trying not to cuss anymore, or I'm trying not to have impure thoughts, or whatever, right? And I remember really wrestling with what does the cross mean for someone who's always been saved? And it took God really shake me, shaking me to the core to realize that I had not always been saved. 
And that although many of my friends had been lost in their rebellion, I had been lost for years in my self-righteousness. And both, whether you are rebellious or self-righteous, both are absolutely demeaning to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So some of you, you spent your whole lives giving God the proverbial middle finger. You've been running for as long as you can remember. And you demean the work of Christ because there's no one who loves you more. And some of you are like me. You grew up in church. You were nice kids. You tried to do your best. But you believed that the grace of God was strong enough to save someone else and wasn't really needed for the things that you were dealing with. And so you demeaned the work of Christ just as much in a different direction. And I love this because this is the way that Paul starts. He says, as for you, you were dead. He's speaking to this Ephesian church. And if you don't know the story of the Ephesian church, you need to go back and read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. It's this amazing story where Paul shows up and the presence of God in Ephesus is thick and begins to do this saving work as people see Christ. In Acts chapter 19, the power and the presence of God begins transforming the church people first. The Jewish people who had grown up going to synagogue, they begin to be changed by the power and the presence of God, which is pretty remarkable. Every now and then, even church people are saved. The story keeps going, and the power and the presence of God moves beyond the church and begins to reach the people in the city. And not the, the, the nun-kicking, orphanage-burning-down types of people, but the people who are just good and didn't care about God. So it begins to reach those people, and they become, begin to know Jesus. But if you read the end of Acts chapter 19, you need to go back and read it tonight. It begins to reach a group of people uh, that hated the Lord. Begins to to reach this group of witches and people doing sorcery and all of these things. And at the end of Acts chapter 19, this revival breaks out. And this group of people from all sorts of life, by the power of God and the presence of the Spirit, begin to become one of the most significant churches in the early Christian history. Just absolutely amazing. And Paul looks out at him. He says, do you realize that in this room, although our stories are different, our testimonies are the same, whether you are religious or self-righteous, every one of you needs the saving grace of Jesus Christ. He says, and before Christ was in the picture, you were dead. And now this is a, a huge thought. You know, in the physical world, we understand death, right? Have you ever been there when someone passed away? Have you ever held the hand of someone that breathed their last breath? It's just a really holy and terrifying and significant moment. And death, in the physical sense, is the moment when a body loses the ability to respond to any external forces. When a body can no longer respond to a wife's touch or a child's voice or to the the doctor's efforts to get the heart beating again, that's what death is by definition. And Paul looks out at the crowd who are very different. Some grew up in church, some didn't. Some are self-righteous, some are rebellious. And he says, listen, before Jesus entered the world, your heart, your mind, your spirit were completely unresponsive to the voice and the will and the life of God. And so whether you deemed yourself to be good and holy or not, it doesn't matter. You are dead men walking. You are dead women walking. And he says, this is where we start. And I've realized that until we as a church, whether you are rebellious or self-righteous, until we as a church can come to grips with our depravity, we can never come to grips with the beauty of the cross. Because you are dead. I love the way he keeps going, verse 4. This is one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Look at this, verse 4. He says, but because you tried so hard, and because you pursued so deeply, and because you were so religious, Christ has saved you. Isn't that beautiful? Your Bible say something different? Yeah, yeah. See, that's the passage that I've lived out most of my life, right? And I love this. He, he turns the corner. He says, you were dead. Ethos, 
you guys were dead. I was dead. Two most significant words in this whole text. But God. He says, you were dead. He says, but God. He says, but God, because of his great love for us. But God, who is rich in mercy. God, who by his grace, he has saved us. Uh, This is so cool. I don't know if you've noticed this in the scriptures, but have you noticed that every time Jesus shows up at a funeral, he ruins it? This is just what God does. When God shows up around dead people, they're no longer dead. Right? Yeah, sister, whoever said that. I love that. God shows up in power and presence. And dead people begin to walk. Dead people begin to breathe. And he says, this this is the story. He says, you are dead, but God shows up. And it was his love, his mercy, his grace by which you've been saved. And I go, man, this is huge. Because some of you guys grew up in very man-centered religious faiths, right? Where this was all about you and all about what you chose and all about what you did and all about what you pursued. And Paul's going to say, no, listen, this view of salvation in the Bible is so much bigger and so much more beautiful and so much broader than maybe you ever grasped. He says, you realize that God is the one who loves. God is the one who chases. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who is pursuing. And it is by his grace, not your determination, that you and I are saved. They go, man, this is huge. Uh, This word saved, I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but you should underline the word saved because it has two really beautiful, robust dimensions that we've got to think about and deal with. As the scriptures speak of salvation and being saved, the first way that it tends to speak of salvation in this context is to be saved legally or in a legal sense. So in other words, you've, you've probably heard this growing up, that God created everything and it was beautiful and powerful and wonderful and then Man and woman showed up and they ruined it, right? And because of your choices and my choices, there is punishment that we deserve. And Christ showed up on the cross and he took that punishment. Have any of you heard that? Just shake your heads if you heard that. Um, I'm glad you've heard that. That's, that's true. But the problem is it's just part of the gospel. See, we so often talk about salvation and we think about Jesus getting, out of, getting us out of a bind legally with the covenant we've broken with God. But there's another side of salvation that Paul's speaking about here as well. God, Jesus does not just save us legally. He saves us relationally. And the two are not opposed, but they're unbelievably connected. I think I've used this illustration before, but it's the, the best way I know how to, to bring these two concepts together. My next-door neighbors are wonderful. Their names are Stephen Tracy. They have this sweet little daughter with brown hair. Her name's Peyton. She's three years old. Loves to play with my son, Micah. You know, we just absolutely love their family. And so many days I'll come home from work and I'll see her out in the front yard playing. Now, let's just imagine uh, one day I'm driving home from work in my 2001 Buick LeSabre with a dented inside, listening to Katy Perry, driving too fast, texting while driving through the neighborhood, and Peyton runs out in the street, and I hit her with my car. Kill her. Uh, There are very few things that I could think of that would be more tragic than accidentally hurting a child. Now, if that moment happened, let's just pretend for a minute, okay? The cops would show up, and they would ask me what happened, and because I'm a preacher, I'd have to tell them the truth. I was driving too fast, listening to Katy Perry, texting while driving, and I ran over this little girl and I killed her. So they take me to court, and I'd stand before the judge one day, and the judge would sentence me to whatever it was that I was due because I'd killed a child accidentally with my car while being reckless. Now here's what I want you to think through. Isn't it true that if I went to jail and spent 10 years in jail, satisfied the penalty that the judge had given me, once I got out of jail, isn't it true that I'm completely fine and okay with the legal system here in Nashville, Tennessee, right? Shake your heads if this is yes. 
You get that? But does me being made right with the law make me right with the parents whose daughter I took away? So do I move back into my house after serving the legal sentence and look at my next-door neighbor, Steve, and say, dude, what's the big deal? I took care of it legally. No, because satisfying legally will never satisfy relationally that which a parent has lost. So how would Steve and I get back to being good friends? We would only get back there if he, the Father, chose to extend grace. If he, the Father, chose to forgive. And this is one of the real challenges, especially if you've been in church for too long, is so many times we just speak about salvation and we speak about the ways in which we've sinned against God legally, and it's true, we've broken covenant with Him, but you and I have not just sinned against God legally. You and I have sinned against Him relationally because you killed His only Son. And I killed His only Son. And this is the reason that religion is so unsatisfying, no matter how many times you go to church or no matter how many checks you write or no no matter how many people you serve. What you try to make up for legally will never satisfy you relationally with the Father. And Paul looks out, guys, and this is great news whether you're rebellious or self-righteous. He says, you were dead, but God, in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, has saved you relationally and legally. And this is the way it keeps going, verse 6. Is this making sense? Is this computing It's resonating in your heart to love this. It says, and God has raised us up with Christ. He seated us with God in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace that have been expressed to us in kindness through Jesus Christ. This is huge. I remember reading this as a kid, and I'd read verse 6, and I always read it as being in the future tense. God saves us, and so one day we'll be raised up and seated in the heavens with Christ. Did you notice that that verse is not in the future tense, it's in the past tense? He says, those of you that that have been saved by the power and the grace of Jesus have already been seated in heavenly realms with God the Father by the power of Christ. Now, think about this with me for a minute in just earthly terminology. So if you and I left here and we went and got on a plane, we could fly down and be in Mexico tonight, okay? So isn't it true that our bodies could be in Mexico We could eat Mexican food, listen to Mexican music, dance with Mexican women, watch Mexican sunsets, talk in Mexican accents, and no matter what we did, at the end of the night, no matter how hard we tried, you and I would still think, act, and talk like what? Americans, right? Because our bodies can be present in one place, but we can be citizens of somewhere else. Now, this is the great exchange of salvation. I don't know if you notice the way that Ephesians chapter 2 flips upside down on itself. He says, at the beginning, you and I lived among the world. We thought the way the world did. We practiced sexuality the way the world did. We spent our money, and we did our jobs, and we gratified ourselves the way that the world did. And then Christ, then Christ came in, and he has seated us in the heavens. And now our bodies are present, but our citizenship is somewhere else. Our bodies are here, but our lives and our minds and our hearts are somewhere else, and it changes the way that we do absolutely everything. And so we think and we talk and we speak and we date and we do everything differently because the kingdom that you and I are living in is no longer controlled by Satan, but by the glory and the beauty and the power of Jesus. This is the beauty of salvation. It's the great reversal that God takes the place that you and I rightfully deserve on the cross. 
And then he puts us in the place that he rightly, rightfully deserves the glory of heaven. He says, this is past tense once you've been saved. And look down at verse 7. Another phrase you should underline in your Bibles. He says, he's done this. He seated you in the heavens in order that. In the coming ages. So he says, in the past, he's done this. He saved you. He seated you. And he goes, he's done this in order that. I love this. In the ages to come. He might use you to show his inexpressible grace and kindness to Jesus Christ to the world around you. Now, this absolutely blew my mind this week as I was thinking about it. I don't know if you ever had those moments where you read the Bible and it's just like, man, I want to tattoo that across my face. It's just like so good, so good. And I love this. He says, do you realize that when you've been saved, God seats you in heaven, he gives you a new citizenship, and then all of a sudden as you live in a world that is decaying, you and I become trophies of his grace and kindness. That as Christians, when we view salvation uh, the, the way biblically, you and I don't view this as an escape plan from a world that is crumbling, but we view ourselves as pillars, as trophies of grace and God's kindness in a world that's falling apart. So he says people will look at you and they'll go, man, I knew what you lived like, verses one through three, when you were dead. What happened? And their only response is God must be kind. God must be kind. I was thinking about that a lot this week. I don't know if you guys have been watching the news or keeping up with all the hoopla. But it's been interesting to watch the way that people on both sides of the spiritual and Christian realm and political realm have been drawing hard lines in the sand over a variety of issues. And I'm not even going to deal with the issues. I don't really care what you think about the issues. Here's what I want to ask is, I wonder if anyone looked at the people of God in the midst of this last week and looked at the way we lived our lives and said, man, God must be kind. I wonder if people looked at the way we were living amongst a culture that was arguing and picking sides, and I wonder if any of them came to the conclusion that God was for them. He says, this is what happens when people have a, a biblical view of salvation. Man, you become seated in the heavens. You see the world differently. You become trophies of grace in a world that is decaying so that people might know the kindness of God. Verse 8, he says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Don't you hate that verse, just honestly? You know, this like rubs up against everything American in us. We love performance, don't we? It's the reason we love the Olympics. If you do great, then you get the gold medal. And if you do poorly, then you don't. And the truth is, you and I live in a world where we want to get what we deserve as long as what we deserve happens to be what we want. <laughs> right? That's the world we live in. And we project this on God all the time. Man, God, I want, I want what I deserve. And Paul goes, you are crazy. Crazy. He says, here's the deal with salvation, man. You, you cannot earn this. There's no way you can earn this. He says, it is by God's grace that he has given you this gift, and the result of this gift is that you no longer boast. Now, that word boasting is so interesting. When Paul wrote this letter to this young church in Ephesus, uh, this word boasting was uh, really kind of a title that they would use in the military. Uh, I never even learned this or heard this until this week as I was just kind of digging in. I found this so fascinating. Uh, armies in the old days, because the, the form of combat was so brutal, you just have a sword and run at each other. You know, your chances of living were pretty horrible. They had hire boasters to come in. And a boaster's job was to come in right before the battle and to build the army up and to make fun of the enemy. So if you've ever seen Braveheart, 
It's that moment where literally Mel Gibson, he was being a boaster. That's what they did in war. Ran in front and he made fun of the enemy and he boasted up the troops. So they have 5,000 chariots, but we have 10,000. You know, our sword's bigger than theirs. Whatever it is that you would say in the first century, I don't know. But they would, they would boast themselves up by making fun of the enemy and then bragging about their strength so that their people could face death bravely. And Paul says before salvation from Christ gets a hold of you, he goes, this is the way that you live. And I'd argue that this is the way many in the church are still living if we're not careful. Is that we convince ourselves that we're strong and that we're powerful and we sit in accountability groups and we say, I'm never going to look at that again. I'm never going to do that again. Never, I'm strong or I'm strong. And we bolster each other, right? And we send each other back out towards the enemy. And how's that go? What's it take? Three hours? Three days? Three weeks? And I love this because salvation from Christ is not only the death of performance. Salvation from Christ is the death of all boasting in our strength. And this is the great upheaval of salvation in the scriptures, man. This is, this is huge, guys. It's the reason you come in here, and although some of you are still faking it, it's the reason you can come in here and you don't have to fake it, because as Christians, we don't boast in our strength. We boast in our weakness and in the strength of Jesus Christ and the cross. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. He says, listen. He says, Satan, far stronger than I am. I'm weak, but Christ is much stronger than both of us. Wherever God finds himself in the equation, the equation just got better. And I love this picture. He says it's the end of all boasting because of who God is. And so this is the picture it keeps unfolding. Is you were dead. You've been saved from this life. You've been saved to a better life. And this is how he ends, verse 10. If you don't memorize scripture very often, you should memorize verse 10. Uh, this has kind of become one of my life verses. It's just so beautiful. He says, and this is what you were saved for. This is why God even bothered saving you from death, Okay. He says, for we are God's workmanship. That literally means his masterpiece. Created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is so huge. I want us to dig in here, and then we'll end, and we'll worship, and we'll take communion. But I just, I love the way he ends this. He goes, man, you've been saved from death. You've been saved into a new kingdom. And he goes, and you've been saved for new purposes. He goes, do you realize, do you realize that humanity is God's masterpiece. Do any of you guys ever struggle to believe that? Like I go on vacation and I look at the beauty of the ocean or a scuba dive and I see tropical fish or you snowboard on the side of a mountain or you listen to great jazz music or you eat a wonderful steak or you dance with a friend or whatever and you have these moments where you're interacting with creation and you see how wonderful God's creation is and then you look at people and sometimes we just kind of suck, don't we? But do you remember the way that this all started in Genesis chapter 1? God is creating the mountains and the birds and the animals and the oceans and everything in them. And he looks down and after everything he creates, he says, man, that's good. And then he creates people and what does he say? He goes, that's very good. God looks and he goes, man, you guys, humanity, you are the pinnacle. You're the pinnacle of creation. You're the thing that brings me the greatest joy and the most beauty and the most significance. And I go, man, how amazing is this? And he goes, man, you are God's masterpiece, created in Jesus Christ. And this is huge. I was talking to a friend this week who grew up in a really poor part of this city. He grew up with a dad that beat 
he and his siblings and uh, beat his mom when he was around. He grew up with a dad that was sexually, verbally uh, abusive, just a, a, a terrible guy to the family. Uh, he grew up in a home where almost everyone in his family used and sold drugs. And I remember him just saying, he said, Dave, my goal is that if I can just get out of jail, if I can just quit using, if I can just have a life that I don't beat, I'm going to feel good. And I remember listening to his story and I was just going, man, it's, isn't it true that your understanding of where you come from so often either hinders or propels you into what it is that you do next? And some of you, you think about where it is that you come from and it's hard to imagine anything much better. Some of you, because of where you came from, your families, the sky's kind of the limits. But here's what I love. He says, do you realize that you are God's masterpieces and you did not begin, your story did not start when your parents had a really good date night. You did not begin, you know, that fateful night in February. He goes, no, one night, the creator of the universe was sitting around, and he dreamed you up. You began as a thought in the heart and the mind and the imagination of God the Father. That he thought about the color of your hair and your eyes and the things that you'd be good at, the sound of your voice, where you would live and when you would live there. He thought about the things he would put in your heart and the longings and the skills and the gifts that he gave you. And he did all of these things, not only because he loves you, but because he loves the world around you. He goes, you are my masterpieces created in Jesus. You were dreamed up in the heart, in the mind, and the imagination of God for great things. And I was thinking about that this week. You know, I was just thinking about my wife, Sydney, and just and how cool it is that God, like, thought of her. He dreamed her up. He's like, man, she's going to be hot, you know, and she's going to have brown hair, and she's going to have these eyes that can look right through you. And she's going to be brilliant. She's going to be way smarter than her husband. She's going to have compassion for people that he doesn't have compassion for. She's going to have this ability to dance in ways that are sometimes so good it's inappropriate when you're at family weddings and you're going to have to rein her in. And she's going <laughs> to teach her kids things that you don't want her to teach your kids. But Dave, there's this great adventure unfolding in the world all around you in the kingdom of God, and I'm going to give you a partner to be a part of it. And he dreamed up this woman. He dreamed up you guys. It's the reason I look at you. It's the reason I'm here every week, and I go, man, guys, you have no idea how much God the Father loves you. And there's nothing about you that is accidental. And he says, and as he saves us from who we were, as he saves us to himself, he begins to help us recapture what it was that we were created for. And he goes, you were created in Jesus for good works, for the work of the Father all around you. And sometimes I look at Christians and I go, man, I think our view of salvation is that it's only good for getting us out of hell and putting us in church once a week. And I go, man, I'm not, I think there's more than that. I think there's more. He's saying, man, as you see the beauty of Christ, you begin to interact with the world differently. And this is what I love because if this, this picture of salvation, remember we're only looking at the first piece tonight. We're not talking about our response to it. We're just looking at the work of God. I'm going, man, if this is true, it changes absolutely everything. It changes the way we view God, doesn't it? You know, God is not this angry cosmic force that we're trying to appease. But he's the father that pursues and loves and sends his only son to satisfy legally and relationally that which we botched. It doesn't just change the way we view God. It changes the way we interact with people around us, right? I just share a conversation I had with you guys this week, uh, with a guy this week. It was so awesome. This is wonderful dude. We're sitting down at Portland Brew off of 12th Avenue South. And he says, Dave, how do the people at your church treat homosexuals? 
Very relevant, right? He said, how do you guys treat homosexuals? And I said, we treat homosexuals kindly and with grace and love and mercy, just as we treat all human beings kindly with grace and love and mercy. He said, why? I said, man, you clearly didn't know me before I became an agent of God's grace in my life, man. You know, man, when Christians come in contact with the grace and mercy of Jesus, it does not drive us away from truth. It does drive us away from the need to, 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 to condemn everyone else around us, right? And so as we become full of grace and truth, just as Jesus was, John chapter 1, full of grace and truth, those two things are not opposing. We learn how to live as pillars of grace and truth in the world all around us. And so as we interact with people who might see things differently and understand things differently and have different stories, you and I do not feel the need to be the spiritual police who reign them in. But we understand that it is God's job to deal with things that do not line up with his ways, and it is our job to be trophies of grace and kindness as we have been on the receiving end of grace and kindness. Does that make sense? And I go, man, this is what it means to be people who are saved. That as the world around us looks at us, they go, man, the God you worship must be kind. He must be gracious because I see you. It changes the way that we interact with each other, doesn't it? You know, even in here, guys, we still have this temptation to perform. Some of you, I know this is true, some of you in here tonight, you feel unworthy or you feel guilty because of what you did yesterday or what you did this afternoon. And here's what's crazy. It's crazy that you would feel unworthy by what you did yesterday because last Saturday and last Sunday, when you didn't do those things, you weren't any more worthy to be here on your own merit anyways. And understanding this picture of salvation gives us the freedom to come in here and to take off the mask and say, guys, we don't play games. I am weak and Christ is strong. And you don't have to fake being strong in here. You can be weak and we'll, we'll love you and we'll encourage you in the strength of Christ as well. So this becomes a place where we don't boast anymore in our own strength. But we gather and we sing songs, we face the screen and we worship, we talk about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And I go, thank God we can't earn it, right? We'd be hosed. Thank God. But it's in his grace and his kindness that he saves people like us. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in John chapter 11. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus has just ruined his funeral as well. Lazarus comes out, and the first thing that Jesus says to him is, take off your grave clothes. Because resurrection always leads to what? Life. And I love this picture of salvation. As God is raising us, he's not just raising us from death, he is calling us into life. He's calling us into something with him we can never find on our own. May God do that in our church. May he do that in ways that bring him great glory and show great kindness to those around us. Let's pray together, and then we're going to take communion.